Hi, everyone. It's your host, Dr. Isla Bates, a psychiatrist and artist, here to bring you the podcast, Healer, Heal Yourself, Reduce Burnout, Discover Your Creativity While You Heal Others. Today, I have an interview with Dr. Manal Khan, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at UCLA. And she talks about how poetry has helped her work through trauma and also how she uses it to help some of her patients as well. So join me on this wonderful interview with Dr. Manal Khan. Um, so please tell us a little bit about who you are and where you are right now. I am working as an assistant professor of psychiatry at uh, UCLA. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist and also an adult psychiatrist. I did my intern year in psychiatry at Duke and then transferred over to University of Washington, Seattle to finish my PGY2 to PGY4 years. And then the and the reason that I moved was because I conceived my first child during intern year. So I was fully pregnant and wanted to be with my husband. And a lot of these programs are very front-loaded. So the the idea of doing PGY to a year as a new mother um, and by being yourself. alone in a <laughs> by myself and <laughs> was too much. So yeah. I moved to, and shout out to both the program directors of Duke and University of Washington who kind of facilitated the move. And then I came to University of Washington and then I moved to uh, UCLA and did my child and adolescent fellowship. Right. Um so that's my kind of professional journey, but I'm also, I also came to the U.S. in 2015. So I'm an international me medical graduate. I was born and brought up in Pakistan mm -hmm. and came here in 2015 and started the residency process in 2016. And um, yeah, so I'm, I am uh, still, I, I think, eight years into, into uh, the migration process. I have gotten my green card permanent resident. So that's kind of solidifies a little bit, uh, solidifies some things for me in terms of where I will be staying. Uh, yeah. But yes, so that is that is a little bit of my story. A little bit of your story. So um, how did you meet your husband? Did you meet him here in the U.S.? No, I met him in Pakistan. So we got married in Pakistan. And this is going to sound so traditionally South Asian in some ways because it was an arranged marriage. So our parents facilitated our par parents facilitated us knowing each other. And once we knew each other, we started hanging out. And then we decided that we want to proceed with an engagement. And then we were engaged for a year. Um, and actually, this year, we celebrated, uh, sorry, actually, this year and this month in May, we celebrated our 10th year anniversary. So we have been married for 10 years now. Wow, beautiful. So it's, it's, been, it's been a while. It's been wow. a while now. And, and tell me about your child. You have a I have two children, so I have a residence, two children. So I have a residency baby uh, who was born in my second year, and then I have a fellowship baby who was born in my second year of fellowship. So I have, um, so one is almost six, he will be six in August, and then the other one is um, is going to be two, so he will be two in July. Uh -huh. So I have a six-year-old, almost six-year-old, and almost a two-year-old. Wow, you're very busy. Um, so how is it uh, juggling work and life and kids and how are you doing with that? It is a lot. It yeah. is. I, I will say it is a lot. And I think there is this acceptance that 
it will be a lot for a few years initially when they need so much of your physical presence and time. Um, but as they grow older, it will become a little less kind of physically intensive. Emotionally intensive, it will stay emotionally intensive. But uh, there is that sense that maybe maybe in future we are... we. As you do with re residency, right? You go through the you go through the process, knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think we are also going through the process, knowing, knowing, knowing that there will be some light at the end of the tunnel. Right. I think this is this is like probably the eternal light that keeps us going, moving through life. Actually, that there is going right. to be light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> quite it's quite challenging to um, to juggle parenting and. Uh, being a physician, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I am recently returning from APA, so American Psychiatric Association's annual conference. Mm -hmm. And one of the sessions that we presented on was supporting parent trainees, because about forty percent um, of of the the trainees during the survey responded that they think about becoming parents during their GME training. So it is something that should be expected. This is something that should be conceptualized as a part of people's existence. However, our work culture has been designed as such that it makes it exceptionally challenging to have kids as a physician or as a physician trainee. Uh, when I became pregnant with my first child, I did not have any maternity leave. I had to put together three weeks of my vacation to create maternity leave. And since I was on a visa, I could not kind of, and I was new to the program. So there were there were no rollover sick days. There were no rollover vacation days. Um, and, I, and I could not take an FMLA because that would have prolonged my training as well. So mm -hmm. I was left with like three weeks of vacation. And that kind of highlights the difference sometimes. One of the things that I kind of struggle with is I, I, I grew up in Pakistan where children are kind of normalized in your visual field. You see them from your periphery of your visual field. They're always somewhere in the visual field, running around, being themselves. And coming to the U.S., that has been a little bit of a challenge that so many of our spaces are not children friendly. For example, whether it is after our hangouts, whether like, you know, f uh, these training programs will put together some events after the hour. So with whether they're retreats, whether they're after hour programmings, all of that stuff does not take children into account. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is a little bit kind of like, uh, I'm still not used to it. Like I still want to change the culture here that children mm -hmm. are then lies into our visual field. I think that's a beautiful observation, you know, and, and I think that's also part of the beauty of being an immigrant in this country is just having a different perspective and bringing that. I think we need that. There is when you when you said that children are everywhere and you can see them, I instantly thought about how we put our children's in in children in daycare. We put them away and they're kind of hidden. We don't take them necessarily to restaurants all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a really interesting observation that I hadn't thought about before. So here's a theory and correct. Like I'm just playing with this idea. I have not, this is not well formulated, but here's, here's an idea. Do, do you think that in this culture, so much of our worth is kind of associated with us being workers and if workers have children, they're not great workers. And hence, you have to 
if like if my primary role in this society is to be like to be a worker then those things or those parts of me are not welcomed are not are not kind of like they will be excluded from some of these spaces so i don't know if that is the reason that it is such that I'm sure that's a contributing factor. I mean, most people will say, what do you do, right? And and your work becomes part of your identity in this culture. But um, we also have to remember that medicine, you know, didn't welcome women into the culture for a very long time. And, you know, when I started, it was just beginning to have women accepted. This is like 30 years ago, right? So um, it wasn't quite 50% at that time. And um, and so when we talk about residency, it was residence. The, the doctors, the male doctors would actually live in the hospital, right? They'd take up residency there or they had wives to take care of them. And so the culture is not such that welcomes children necessarily. And I was a single mom during my fellowship. And um, I can tell you that um, there was no empathy. (laughs) There was no empathy at all or understanding. And and the hard part is that being a child child and adolescent psychiatrist as well, I was taking care of other people's children when I sometimes felt like I wasn't there enough for my child. It's a very hard dichotomy to live with. Absolutely, absolutely. And it also, like, for us, it also highlights, that, you know, uh, for us as child psychiatrists, it also highlights there is so much, there's so much knowledge about that those first interactions like you know mirroring that dyadic space Winnicott saying that there is no such thing as a baby the baby exists through that dyadic relationship with the with the parent and then not having empathy for for that baby um and for it for the baby's survival because that baby survives through that relationship with with the parent and i mean even if we look at some of the concepts like hatching does not happen like if we if we were to invoke mahler here hatching does not happen until the first 6 months and the first 6 months are also the primary maternal preoccupation time for maternal reverie as per Winnicott. so she the mother is supposed to be inwardly focused and inwardly focused on the child kind of a thing yeah. But despite knowing all of this, despite knowing all of this, um, there is there is resistance towards, you know, there is some resistance towards having extended parental leaves, which are in neighboring countries too, which mm-hmm. are in neighboring, like, it's not like our other countries are not doing it. They have extended, extended uh, parental leaves. I think that, you know, people think maternity leave is is like a vacation. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what? You're gonna take three months off maternity leave? You know, that's so much time. It's not a vacation. It's not, it's a, not vacation. a vacation. <laughs> People tell you to do projects during it, like you can work on your research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no respect for that time of bonding and you know, it's it's a it's a very challenging time the first three months, right? 
especially if you're a new parent, you're, you know, you're doing this for the first time. And a lot of us feel like we can't take time off because we are somehow harming our colleagues who are going to be covering for us. And we know that there could be repercussions. They could get angry with us. We could end up being, you know, on the worst call schedule known to man because we've taken three months off, right? I don't know if you've been there. I don't know if it's changed, but this has been my experience (laughs) in the past. I think I think it has changed a little bit because I didn't got like my uh, my colleagues were nice enough not to kind of like hold that against me. Uh, also because um, maybe I shifted programs as well, but they were nice enough to not hold that against me. But I also think that there is an understanding amongst residents that this is not the fault. For example, if I take if someone takes a sick day off, that this is not a fault of ours. That the system is designed in a way. I think. Um, residents and trainees now have recognized that the the other with them is not the enemy. The enemy is the system that's de- designed to pitch residents against residents. And um, so it, there is a collective anger, I think, towards the system as opposed to towards each other, which I think has been refreshing to see that we are not we are not blaming each other. Yeah, that's that's really great. Yeah. So, well, one of the reasons, you know, of course, I invited you on this podcast is because you're also a poet. So I love to talk about the creative aspects in your life and how that has impacted you. So can you tell us a little bit? Absolutely, absolutely. Again, I will make it as long or as short as you would want me to. I'll go back a little bit in my history or in my grandparents' history to kind of highlight some of the some of the some of the things that are uh, that our region and our community has faced. So my grandparents, all four of them, were immigrants from India to Pakistan. So they survived the partition and they moved. Uh, they re- relocated from India to Pakistan. And partition, I think, is one thing that is often not talked about, uh, despite it being a very kind of. Uh, it was a very bloody, in some ways, very traumatic. Um, experience for people of South Asia. And it is something that's often not talked about in the, as openly as some of the other traumatic events in the world are mm-hmm. talked about. Um, so they survived that and they came to Pakistan where they were known as immigrants. Like their identity, the, the term that's often used to describe them is Mahaj, like their identity and then my parents' identity and my identity is, there's a term called Mahajir, which means immigrant. So that's my ethnic identity in Pakistan. Either I will be called Urdu speaking, which is the language that I speak, which kind of designates that my family migrated from India to Pakistan, or I will be called Mahajir. Uh, so then my parents become first generation Pakistanis. I am second generation Pakistani, but then I'm also a, an immigrant. And then my f- children are, so there is immigrate, and my children are now first generation uh, Pakistani Americans. So immigration is kind of woven throughout our story. Either we are we have been immigrants or children of immigrants, and then immigrant and then children of immigrants. I also grew up in a Pakistan which was politically unstable. Um, like I, again, as we, I was talking about my community that that came to uh, to Pakistan, there was some persecution that happened, especially when the community became a little bit politicized and took up arms, there was resistance from the state towards the community. And 
there were crackdowns and, uh, you know, persecution that happened as a result. So there was political instability um, during my years of growing up. And then I was nine, I was uh, 13 years of age when 9-11 happened. So and after that, there was a war in Afghanistan and then um, and parts of Pakistan. And then there was backlash in Pakistan with regards to suicide bombings and uh you know, when something like that happens, it trickles down. There is political unrest. There is, it has its impact on healthcare system, on educational system. It has its impact on daily life in forms of like, even those street crimes, mobile snatchings, all of those things kind of become a lot more prevalent because there is a there is chaos and there is lack of law and order that permeates through all aspects. So it was it is a very turbulent, it was a very turbulent turbulent time, and it was a very turbulent time um, while I was growing up. So I had to kind of like make sense of all of that, make sense of the part, the intergenerational transmission of trauma, the partition, how my parents, how my grandparents kind of idealized their, the losses that they have had and had a difficult time kind of reconciling with what was in front of them. Then also understanding that the community was a little bit marginalized and not liked. Um, and then also with the with the 9-11 and the consequent wars, realizing that our reality is kind of shifted forever with regards to how the world sees this region. So all of that art gave me, art gave me, provided me an opportunity to kind of process all of this and make sense of all of this and be able to write about it. So it kind of restored a little bit of sense of agency that I'm not just a, and this is so important from like a, a trauma perspective that I'm not just a passive recipient of what's happening to me in the world. I'm able to take that and I'm able to metabolize them. And I am, I have some agency in how I put it out there. Um, and that I can also, and I think this is a, like, I was able to receive that and transform it in some way. Yes. And I, and I think art, especially poetry did that for me. My grandpa my grandparents on both sides used to write as well. They have written books. So I think, and my uh, my Nana, who's like my maternal grandfather, wrote poetry. So there was a little bit linkage. He's, he used to say that he will give me 10 rupees, which does not, I don't even know how much it translates to. It must be less than a cent or something that he will give me 10 rupees for every poem that I wrote. Oh. Like he wanted to <laughs> encourage that artistic expression. Yeah. Um, and when, and even as a summer project, when I wrote a book on Jinnah, who's, who's the founder of Pakistan, he, uh, because we had to write a book on one of the famous personalities and I wrote a book on him and he was like, I will publish this. I was like, this is a summer project. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to publish this. But he really, really, um, he was really encouraging when it came to creative expression. Yeah. Um, I think that, that encouragement from him and and that desire to make sense of what was happening around me uh, brought me to poetry. Wonderful. That's beautiful. Um, so at what age did you start writing these poems? So I have, I remember writing as young as I was like 10 or 11, uh, but I never used to like, and I used to have such elaborate process. Now, looking back at it, I have to probably work through some of that in therapy a little bit. But I had such an elaborate process on how to destroy those poems. Like I would write it on a piece of paper, then 
put sticker on top of it, like mm. tape, not sticker, tape on top of it, and then rip the tape so that the page would, you know, break up in some way so that nobody could see what I had written. Written. It wasn't until much later in life, probably around like uh, high school, that I started collecting the poems. And then, um, but then I published a book as well in Pakistan, which is, and which kind of captures uh, some of the things that I was going through because a lot of poems are related to, you know, political unrest or bomb blasts or even the title of the book is called Of Rainbows, Gutters and Prisms. And the idea was that you can see a rainbow in a gutter uh, if you have the right lens. Like you can only you can only talk about beauty. You can you don't have to necessarily talk about beauty by creating a false narrative. You can find beauty in some of the things that are happening around you or chaos in some of the things that are happening around you. Um, because there's another famous saying, I don't know if you have heard this, that there's, I think a Palestinian poet has said that, that I cannot write about birds chirping when I hear warplanes. So it was a similar thing for me that I can't write about, you know, I can't write about beautiful meadows or like beautiful skies and all of those things when my reality is a little bit different and I have to find beauty in this reality that, that is in front of me. And that was where the inspiration for the title for the title comes from. That's a really beautiful, beautiful image too. Yeah. Because, you know, I think that's where gratitude comes in. That um it's, you know, seeking gratitude, savoring gratitude, which we don't often do, savor the moment, is is appreciating, is looking for the good within all that we have to contend with in life. Yeah. yeah. So um, you published this book in Pakistan. Have you? Yes, I published. Okay. And what about in the U.S.? Have you published any poems? No, I have. I have published poems in like newsletters. Now I, I think I'm re- re- relocating to the U.S. There was a gap, like there was a huge gap between. I stopped writing when I went into residency just because maybe I didn't have the time for it. Yeah. And. It wasn't actually until fe- the end of fellowship or the the middle of fellowship when I started writing again. And now I'm collecting all the poems that I have written since that time. And all of them are in some way depictive of my work or depictive of where I am in life. So I have I have this fantasy that I will once I have enough, I will publish them in the form of a book. And it's a really cool, it's a really cool thing because the thing that unlocked me. To write again, like unlock that writing, that desire in me to write again was actually a patient. And it was it was an interaction with a patient where the patient loved poetry and wrote poems. And then we decided that we are going to write poems and we are going to present each other with poems. And when I had to do that for for that patient, mm-hmm. I got into the habit of writing poetry again. Okay. And then I realized what I had missed it. Yeah. So I wrote her and then I started writing again. And since then I have been writing. So I am very, very thankful to that patient for unlocking that aspect of me as well. Yeah, I think um, I think it's wonderful how patients can um, bring to light some of the things that we need as well. As much as we help them, they also help us. 
and as again, I'm invoking Vinigod has Vinigod has said that it's playing together, like psychotherapy is uh, an overlapping area of play between a therapist's play and the patient's play, and then psychotherapy happens in that overlap. So, um, so yes, they they activate things in us and they help us grow in ways that probably some of them don't now that they do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm glad to hear that you use poetry as well. That's in- interesting, the interaction, you writing as well as the patient writing. Um, I have a patient who writes beautiful poetry too, but I haven't thought about me writing poetry with her. That's Or, you know, I use drawing and art as well with some of my patients. Um, yeah, so it's that's an interesting interaction. Can you um, elaborate a little bit more on that? Like how, what was the exchange like that you had with your patient? So the, so the exchange. Without revealing too much about her or what was the age? What was the age? Were they uh, young or older? 11 11 years of age, Mm -hmm. between 11. Uh, They were, they were very young, uh, but they were very advanced for their age. Like they were very developmentally advanced for their age. So what they brought to light was the way they they were struggling with their own trauma and they were able to put their trauma into words with the help of poetry. And they, the sim, and again, not to reveal too much, but the symptoms that they were struggling with, they were able to communicate what was underlying all of those symptoms. Again, sometimes this is an, again, side note that sometimes we think that symptoms are problems and they need to be addressed through therapy, right? But symptoms sometimes are also indicative of underlying conflicts. And sometimes those conflicts need to be understood and made sense of. So they were able to kind of go a little bit deeper with poetry and talk about the conflicts that were underlying the symptom presentation. Um, And for me, I think my aim with them was to kind of validate where they were at that I see them mm-hmm. and that I'm a witness uh, to them in this journey. And I think one of the things that truly meant, meant a lot uh, to me to be able to communicate to them was that I want really wanted them to know that I will hold them in my mind, that this, this separation that we will undergo when there will be a termination in our relationship does not need to be traumatic because pa- their past s- separations had been a kind mm-hmm. of... Uh, impacted by loss, irreversible loss. So I wanted them to know that this, I will continue to hold them even even when we finish our work together. Uh, they, and they continue to hold me in their mind. Yeah, uh, that's a beautiful, so that, beautiful memory. I think that's, that's really wonderful. And um, did they keep the poems that you wrote or was there any holding on? I don't know. Or I don't know. Did you just read to them? I read to them and I gave them a piece of paper as well. Um, so I hope that I have kept. I have in my office. Uh, in so I'm in my office right now. In my office, I have kept the letter from them. Yeah. Um, in all of my like, you know, we have these awards and we have these certificates of completion of this training versus that training and so in front of all of that I have kept their letter just to kind of remind me that 
everything is in service of this. Like other things fall behind all of the trainings and the certifications and the uh, kind of like awards and accolades kind of fall behind. But this is the relationship here. That is what I would want to recreate with other patients. Yeah. I think one of the important messages that I want doctors to understand is that when we use the arts, it's a form of communication and we're not utilizing it enough in our practice and in our, our treatment. And if we see it as a form of communication and we practice, it's a, it's it just gets us really closer and in, more engaged to our patients and helps us to not burn out so quickly. What do you think of that? Yeah. Absolutely. I think one of the, and I, because I've struggled with this, I've struggled with, you know, how to, how to preserve that sense of meaning in yeah. our work uh, in these systems, because sometimes it feels like, you know, you will hear from a lot of trainees and I'm kind of uh, closer because I just finished training in 2022. So I'm kind of closer to that perspective a little bit. You will hear from a lot of trainees that we feel like cogs in a system. Yes. That we that there is that's there that there is this loss of meaning in our profession. And I think a lot of us crave for that human bonding with our patients because I don't want to see my patient through the lens of like if I have a 20-minute medic medication check-in, after which, like, you know, they they book these 30-minute slots, but you are only allowed to see patient for, you know. 20 minutes, and then you have to present to the attending for five minutes, and then you have to come back and repeat what you have already talked about in the first 20 minutes in the last five minutes again. So that's how, and sometimes when that keeps happening over and over and over again, you start seeing patients through the lens of SIG ECAPS. Mm -hmm. Like that is where you're like, well, how's your sleep? How's your interest? How's your guilt? How's your energy? How's your concept? You start as you become a little bit more kind of symptom focused. And then though our humanity and the patient's humanity both gets diminished in the process. And I think mm -hmm. we, we crave for more. And I think arts uh, allow us to see each other a little bit in a, in a fuller way. And, and, you know, and however they say, like in the multiplicity of our complexities, like we are infinitely layered and, and it allows us to see our layers as opposed to just seeing what is on the surface. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's what keeps us going, right? Because if if every patient becomes a diagnosis, they we lose that humanity. We lose the individual, what makes them special. Um, yeah. So I think the arts, for me, keeps me in focus with who's the individual across from me. Yeah. And you can do it anyway. You can do it by writing or drawing or whatever aspect you choose. And storytelling and as as well. I think one other one other way in which arts have helped me in medicine, especially since now I'm a little bit more focused on writing of my writing about my experience in healthcare is again as I was talking, giving me a sense of agency in systems that feel sometimes too kind of bureaucratic or big or hard to shift or difficult to move. It gives me a sense of agency to be able to put my voice out there, to be able to advocate, to be able to process what it feels like to be in a system like that. So it, again, as it was, as it had given me agency back when, it's again giving me a sense of agency now 
uh, that I can make sense of this. I can make a little bit more meaning. If, if for anything, and there's also a part of me that wonders if I like to agitate <laughs> through my words. And sometimes you have to agitate through your words a little bit. Like, <laughs> so, so it gives me a sense of that. It gives me a sense of being that I'm doing something, that I'm not just like a passive recipient of what's happening around me. Beautiful. It's It empowers you. Yeah. Yes, it does. That's wonderful. Would you uh, be able to share one of your poems with us? Absolutely. So I can share the one that I shared with you before because that's the most recent one. Okay. But I can share, actually, I can share a couple. I can share that because it captures my philosophy of, and also to just to preface, I work in the inpatient system, inpatient units. And sometimes our inpatient units come very close to carceral system, right? And yes. that feels heavy on people who work on in the inpatient units. And through this poem, what I'm trying to do is imagining an alternative reality where some of these structures around us, where our patients for nature does not have to be so heavy, where their their possessions are not completely taken away from them, where they're not put in hospital gowns or hospital kind of like garb and stuff like that. So I'm talking about that, um, but let's see. Okay. Out beyond, uh, out beyond the realm of doing, there is a field of being, of feeling. I will meet you there. Where the chaos of our systems is not made a pathological marker of your character. Where I won't have to defend you against the accusations of manipulation, of seeking attention. Where policies and not prescriptions will address the so-called deficits. Deficits in providing safety. Deficits in providing shelter. Where, your bo- where our bodies yours and mine's won't be devoured to make profits, to close margins at the dictates of a corporate's desires. When we meet, it won't be in the barren land of empty walls and lifeless halls, you with your humanity stripped away, walking defeated in a green hospitalized garb. Where I won't forget to adorn you with all the layers that you wear, where my eyes will see you and I will refuse to look away. I promise to hold you in that land in a mind that is not cluttered, and you will hold me too when allowed to mirror. We will meet there. I promise to listen to the distress in your voice and not medicate it for structural comfort. You won't be secluded and restrained, and your soul won't be subjugated to an oppressive show of power. In that land, we will meet, we will feel, and we will be free of the systems that stand between and against us. Mm. beautiful so kind of for me it highlights because a lot of times our patients even in our internal meetings are even how sometimes our patients are described by their loved ones they would use language like oh that patient is manipulative or that patient is attention seeking and so much of our work is about shifting that language around the patient right Mm. um and Allowing, especially as a child psychiatrist, giving parents a mirror in which they can see their child fully. And because, again, this is from the Novak's book, but when we talk about a child, it is the three things that we're working on. We are working with the child, we're working with the parents, and we're working on the parent-child relationship. So we have three kind of objectives, especially if the relationship is, you know, like if there is some safety in that relationship, I'm not talking about very traumatic parent-child relationships, which... Uh, which are a little bit hard to salvage, but I'm talking about relationships that are impacted. Um, 
So that's our work. And I think a lot of times our goal is to kind of shift the language around the patient. And I think it happens in the way we document about the patient, in the way we present the patient during treatment team rounds, um, in the diagnosis that we allow to be put on a patient versus not. For example, do we label someone as oppositional defined disorder? Is that a real kind of label to put on someone? And then the medications that we choose at all steps, whether it's a small step as the documentation or a big step. Like, for example, I had a conversation with my trainee other, the other day that we are not going to put some of these like language, for example, someone's judgment is poor. What does that mean? If it's limited, let's write limited and as evidenced by kind of a thing. We are not going to put attention seeking in our in our chart. We're not going to put min, min, manipulative in our chart. We are not going to put drug addict in our chart. Like those and things should not upping the end. Upping the end or aggressive, violent. Like what does that mean? Yeah. It, down down on a behavioral level, like what happened as opposed to putting a judgmental label on that. But it starts from the very smaller level and it goes all the way because a lot of times people don't realize those little things then go on to determine the choice of medications that we are going to be making, like which medications we are going to be choosing for who, which are like what are our aftercare plans going to look like and for who. So we have to be constantly aware of how language is shaping our perception around us. Absolutely, because it impacts uh, racism. Our own biases are written into a lot of how we document in medicine. And, uh, you know, I used to give talks to um, healthcare workers because the way they described patients you know, we'd have patients stuck in the emergency room and no unit wanted to accept them because of what was written about them and the way it was written. So oftentimes, um, especially kids who have been in juvie, they will write all the horrible things that child may have done, but there's no description of the symptoms. There's no description of, you know, the hardship that that child may have had the fact that they may actually really be suicidal. Instead, they're saying they're manipulative. You know, they just want to, to be admitted to the hospital to get away from the juvenile detention center, but not really addressing the, the problems that that child has, not really having any empathy. If you list that this kid was a criminal before you list they're depressed and suicidal, it sets them up for a very negative encounter, um, you know, or not getting help at all. Um, yeah. So what we say impacts what happens to that child. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also kind of recognizing there's, a, I have this idea that I'll throw out there. I have this idea about writing a book one day in which the main character who was admitted as a child goes on to request the documentation and then sees and then all the emotions that it brings up for them sees what they were going through their life and the discrepancy in between or the you know or the distance between what was being documented what was being captured through the documentation versus what they were going through in actuality like what was happening internally to them and how there was a mismatch between the two 
And mm-hmm. it also is a time for them to revisit that period in their life. Mm-hmm. So there is a fantasy that I will one day write a book that these things matter. These things, how we label a child, how we document, they matter. And parents will start, like we have to provide pretty robust psychoeducation because otherwise, not just providers, but we're also like impacting parents and how they will see their child. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. so, so yes, so kind of making sense of all, all yeah. of this in our system. Well, it's a cultural shift that has to happen. And um, and you can't do it by yourself. <laughs> you can't be the only one shouting on the rooftops, right? Absolutely. And it brings us back to that seeing children, seeing children as their full, with their in dignity intact, with a sense of respect towards them, seeing children as who they are, as opposed to kind of, you know, putting labels on them and putting them away and kind of removing them eyesight. Right. We have to acknowledge and we have to, and I think it come. It needs to come from a genuine place of understanding that these children represent our future. And if anything, as child psychiatrists, we have to be, we have to be very fully committed, like single-mindedly committed, uh, to loving them and nurturing them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And there's so much trauma in the world right now too, that um, and with social media. Uh, you know, it, it kind of blows blows that up, that aspect up. So it's important to nourish kids too with some positivity in their life and play and and art and all those good things they don't get enough of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, one of the one of the uh, topics that we often discuss in our residency, like when I'm talking about trauma, is that who gets to have rest and who gets to have play is also a form of like, you know, your access to play and your access to rest, because both of those things are supposed to be like, you know, you're kind of washing your soul and you're coming out of it a little bit rejuvenated. So who has access to those things and kind of being aware that we have to constantly advocate for providing those things to our kiddos and play is, you know, play can start with like transitional object, but over time it becomes cultural the capacity to participate in cultural experiences such as art and literature and poetry and theater and all of those things. Yeah. And I think sometimes the grownups in, in, you know, in kids' lives don't have access to these things or feel that they're somehow frivolous and so not important. But they're so important, and it almost as if the adult has to experience the, has to have that revelation in order to really, um, you know, give it as a gift to their children. Yeah, yeah, I don't and because know. a lot of our a lot of our grownups are unnurtured too, right? A lot of our grownups never had the opportunity to be nurtured and nourished either. Yeah, yeah. So important, so important. Do you want to read one more poem? I will read one more poem. And this poem is uh, from a time that, you know, once I had this conversation with the kiddo um, who unlocked this side of me. This is the second poem that I wrote. And at that time, again, this takes this is this is a bridge between both of my worlds. The time when I was in Pakistan and writing about uh, writing about the things that were happening there, whether it was war, political unrest, or suicide bombings, 
and now. And this is when I was also, I was also pregnant at that time, but there was also again, war on TV screens for me. So I, this is a kind of like a reconciliation between the two. So I will read this, read this out. It's called Children and Wars. As they pull their fingers off the trigger, we are told to rejoice. At least for now, more babies won't fall to the ground. Their mothers won't be shot. Their own fragile bod bodies won't be blown apart. The dead will rest. The dust will settle. Only the rubble and some missing limbs and perhaps a memory of a lost sibling will tell you the tale of what was done. Murder, massacre, mayhem. Order will be restored and orders will be followed. Death will change its cloak, but still come. This time, dressed as slow, acceptable, humiliating deprivation. I too will return from being a shell of a parent to face my own son. I will no longer see their brownness in him. We are back to safety, freed from our past tragedies. Grown-ups come back, says Daniel Tiger, but do they really do all grown-ups? Hmm. So it was about, it was about, you know, some, sometimes there are wars and then there are calls for ceasefire. But those ceasefires, even though sometimes those ceasefires are more kind of surface level measures than, uh, than an absolute stop to atrocities. It's just a, like a surface level strategy to appease everyone who's involved. And the trauma continues and the trauma, like even if I look away, even if I have, if I have, if I am to a place in a place of safety a little bit now, it still kind of activates. And the last line kind of uh, speaks to that not everyone's grown up will come back. Some grown ups will be lost forever due to the, these wars. Mm -hmm. Even if they are physically lost or if they are emotionally lost, some of these grown ups will never be able to come back to their children. Yeah, it's very sad. The sad truth. Sad truth, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think would happen if you didn't have poetry in your life? Ooh, that's a really good question. That's a big one. That's a big one. I don't know. I, I don't know if I, I think what it gave me, it gave me an awareness, a language, a sense of agency, and to be able to articulate this, to be able to put it in words. And if I don't, I didn't have access to language. That is all what trauma is about, right? Not being able to process in language. Then I wonder in what actions would it show up, right? Because the whole concept for therapy or treatment is to be able to build that reflective capacity so that you don't have to act out things. And poetry gave me that ability to take a step back, process it, put it in words so that I don't have to act it out. And I wonder if I didn't have it, in what ways would it constantly show up? Uh, so yes, hmm. I, I, I could have become one of those jaded people in the system. I don't know. I might have become a jaded. Maybe I was per perpetuating harm on others just because harm has been done to me, and I was unable to kind of reflect on it, metabolize on, uh, metabolize that, pay attention to the effects that it brought in me, and say never again. Uh, so maybe I would have continued to bring out those effects in other people just because I hadn't fully reconciled with my own past. 
Yeah. And don't we know a lot of people like that? (laughs) But um, yeah, I think, you know, for the, I don't know, 10, 20 years that I didn't uh, do any art at all, or very minimally, um, I was kind of miserable. So for me, it it really helps to, um, for me to connect and find joy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I and I lost a whole chunk to to training and residency, and I wonder how I <laughs> how I survived that period because that period is when you need some of these things, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, what else do you write about in terms of your your poems? Do you do any poetry around your children? Mm, I haven't done much. I because I don't normally write about things that are otherwise pleasant in some ways, right? Um, I have uh, I usually write around controversial topics. So I have written about like I would write about you know motherhood, but from a perspective of how society treats motherhood. Um, mm-hmm. I have written. And like I have, it's mostly, it's mostly, I have my book right next to me. I was looking at it this morning um, of what is in there, but it was a lot of like, again, load shedding, like something that doesn't happen over here, which I, I don't think even the US people will be aware of this term load shedding, which is, which basically means power breakdowns. So I even wrote a poem about power breakdowns uh, because it was, it was a, it was a, it was a huge part of my life as growing up, there would be there would be scheduled power breakdowns because the country cannot afford electricity to be yeah. to be to be there twenty four seven kind of a thing. So we have like scheduled power breakdowns. So it talks about you know there's yeah. a poem that's based on power breakdowns. So but it is it is a lot of it is a lot of what's happening around me, but not necessarily so much. I did start on and the point that you're bringing up i did start a poem about my son but i did not end, end it i haven't still finally uh, fully finished it but i did want to talk about how you know how joyous it can be but i think having written so much about things that have gone wrong or, or gone wrong i think it's mu- just much easier to write about those topics than to talk about you know some of the other things well, it's a release for you as well, right? It's it's a way to express yourself and and uh, rather than hold all of those ideas within you, it's good to get it out. It's a yeah, good yeah, absolutely, yeah. But I there's a part of me that does crave that shift a little bit, that you know, a little bit of more uh, soothing poetry as well, or poetry that gives hope, or poetry that that. Um, that ends on a good note or something like that. I think when you're ready, that will come. But um, yeah, it's, it's you know, and there might be an, uh, another art form that you can use to express those things as well. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe another patient that unlocks that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You never know. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, um, well, it's it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you and learning about you as well. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for taking the time out. And thank you so much for get, you know giving me this space to talk about these things, because we don't often talk about these topics. 
like we just don't. So I'm, um, I'm, ha- I, I'm super grateful to you for giving me this space. Uh, thanks so much. Well, um, I definitely love the way you think, and it's so good to know that there are young people out there <laughs> who are thinking the same way about the doctor-patient relationship, which is is such an important relationship to me, and it's fundamental to healing that we yeah. really look at patients as as human beings, as individuals. Um, with specific characteristics and they're not, it's, it's not a uniform thing. (laughs) These are people that we're dealing with and the humanity in medicine. We, we can't lose it because it's so important to people's wellness. So so thank you. Absolutely. absolutely Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Manal Khan as we talked about poetry. If you're enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Please write a review. If you like what you hear, it means so much to me to have reviews that are positive and it gets the word out to others. And if you think there's somebody else that you know that would enjoy listening to this podcast, please share it with them. And if you want to leave a comment or contact me with a question, please do so. I would love to hear your opinion. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Bye now. Mm -hmm.